following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. kind of a week um, you have had, um, but I look back over my week, the last week, last weekend I went to a couple of wedding ceremonies, Christians, wonderful really, but I've wrestled with something since those wedding ceremonies, thought, why does the, the father bring the bride up the aisle to another guy that's waiting for his daughter? A woman property. We're handing on our daughter to another man. Is that a picture of the new humanity that Jesus came to bring? I had quite a discussion with a friend of mine about that. He didn't agree with me. But, um, but also last week I found I had some real highs. Tuesday was a great day. The Spurs won. Friday, the Spurs lost. Franklin, you may leave now. <laughs> then amidst all of that, Reuben gives me this passage in Judges to, um, to speak on, Judges chapter 9, about a character I don't like, Abimelech. Terrible man. And I've sort of got to try and make some sense out of him over the next half hour. So that wasn't really that exciting. Then this morning the alarm went at six, rain on the roof, it was dark. I thought, this is not right. <laughs> and then I had sort of gone through my prep for this morning, been to sermon.com, sort of got the phraseology right. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'd better find my shoes. And my shoes were out on the deck, it had been raining. <laughs> well, I've only got one pair of shoes. So I thought if I wore running shoes or sneakers up here, Heather would rebuke me. <laughs> so I, I knew Luke had a pair of shoes, so I went and grabbed his. And what I found quite interesting, <laughs> there's these big long things. I sort of feel 10 years younger. <laughs> we used to call them chisel toes back in the day. And then when Debbie came up with that earring she'd found outside, I thought God had answered all my prayers because, now seriously, we've had painters in our house and Heather's hidden her jewellery and um, either the painters have found it or it got left outside the door here. So I thought, well, I'll claim, have a look at this earring, see if it would suit Heather, it could solve all my problems. So that's sort of where I'm at in life this morning. Um, let's have a look at Judges chapter 9. Shall we pray? Father, we just pause and just want to take time to reflect on who you are, what you've done in times gone by, what, have you, what you have done through your incarnation in Jesus and what you're still wanting to do today. Father, I just pray, just help us to be attentive, help us to see aspects of our lives which we may not have seen before. In Jesus' name, amen. 
And the last thing I read on Twitter this morning, it was actually while Biffy was coming up the front, I thought I'd just have a quick look. A speaker whom I'm quoting today in my message, an author, he said this, beware of preachers who tell you what you want to hear. I hope you're safe this morning. But I've put on, I put on a hashtag on Twitter. Um, I thought it was on the screen. Someone's deleted it. There we go. So I've put some extra stuff that relate to the message today. So if you use Twitter, you know, try going on in the service here. We haven't got very good 3G coverage here, but it you know, may look as though you've been spiritual rather than texting, saying, when will I get out of here? But the book of Judges. Reuben introduced this book to us some time ago. And he opened up the book of Judges to us as reminding us that there are two themes that run through this book. Firstly, there's the theme of compromise of God's people. How they continually compromise the calling on their life. But there's another theme that runs through the book of this God who relentlessly pursues their people. And today, we pick up this story in Judges chapter 9, really it's the tail end of the story of Gideon. And in the story of Gideon, we end up with this character Abimelech, a son of a slave woman, trying to take the story further forward. But in the context of the book of Judges, we have this people of God who are faithful one moment, then they just drift away and get sucked in by the culture around them. Then they cry, Daddy, help me get out of jail. We've got trouble. And God comes and rescues them. There's this continual cycle. And as I reflected on the macro story of Judges and the story of Gideon from faithfulness being the one to rescue, and then the end of chapter 8 where he creates his own God and sends this ephod and he calls them to worship this ephod and gives them the power, etc., to guide them in their lives we see he loses his faith. And it's not too different from the world in which we live in, the Christian communities which we are part of, and that's why I've called our message today, Lest We Forget, Keeping Faith Alive. Because in our Christian communities today, we're not that much dissimilar to the nation of Israel. If you think of in our own church community, we have well over 100 children out in our children's program this morning. Our youth program is smaller, our young adults program is smaller. Then we've got this big gap, and there's all these older people. This is a sort of a problem in Christian culture today. We seem to have difficulty in passing on the faith to one generation to the other. It must be something about the way in which we're telling the story. We're passing on something that doesn't actually connect. It actually is not translating into people's lives. And so today I want to look at just four themes that come out of the, the, the story of Gideon and the book of Judges and Abimelech, which I trust just may stimulate your own thinking about how I am passing on my faith to my children. How am I expressing my faith to my partner, my wife, my workmates, my extended family and my friends? What am I actually communica- communicating? I think one of the first things that um, we miss in our Christian lives and passing on the faith is that we actually forget that there is an upper story. We get so preoccupied with our story, our life, what we want to do, what we want to achieve, where we want to be in life. And then stuff happens. 
yeah, we've got God there, but then stuff happens and then we think, well, why has God allowed this to happen to me? And it's all about me and God being this servant of my agenda. So we have this lower story, stuff happens, and we basically think, oh, Christianity just doesn't work, and we drift away. What I'm proposing today is that if, we, in that case, we are forgetting the upper story. If we want to keep faith alive, we've got to make sure we don't forget that there's an upper story to our story. There is a bigger story of which we are part of. But I wonder how many of us can actually articulate that big, articul uh, that big upper story and what it actually means. Could you actually tell your children in two minutes what the story of God is? Because I would suggest if you can't, you haven't got it. Because it's not that complex. But the difficulty is that story can often be, is up here. We've got our world down here. How do we connect the two? Yeah, yeah, I can believe all that stuff about the story of God, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, etc. But my world doesn't, it doesn't work. There's a disconnect. I sort of visualize it like the two hamburger buns. Any decent hamburger's got a good chunk of meat in the middle. Not into these vegetarian things that really don't sustain. The stake in the middle is Jesus. He connects these two worlds. He is our human identity. He came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. He came to show that you can pull the two together and have authenticity, have meaning, have security, have hope. He had stuff happen to him. We read in Hebrews where it says he learnt obedience through the things he suffered. So we've got to somehow get Jesus. And so this upper story, in the context even of the book of Judges, they were so preoccupied with their own stories down here. At times they got into God's story. Yeah, we want to go and take your land. Yes, we're going with you, God. Faithful, he says, don't marry into other races, don't embrace their gods, etc. But once they get there, get the victory, then they just drift off. And really, once again, it's all about them. So, if we want to keep faith alive, we need to be looking at our story in the context of the big story. If I was a counsellor, and thank God that I aren't, but that's the sort of thing I'd be talking to people about. Well, what's happening in the big story? How does your story fit in with what God, what we understand of God and what he's doing with creation? Let's start with God. So here we come to the story of Gideon and Abimelech. And I just want to quickly bring us into the, what's led us to chapter 9 today. Gideon, remember, the Midianites were oppressing the nation of Israel. Prophet comes along. Angel communicates with Gideon and says, you know, God says, I want to defeat the Midianites. You're the man. There's too many troops, so reduces them to 300, heads off into surround the Midianites, wipes them, 120,000 of them out, comes back, the people say, hey Gideon, you're the man, you be the king. He says, no, God's our king. Great thing to say. But then his behavior tells another story. He says, okay guys, bring your gold rings, the gold earrings you left at the door, what have you, give them all to me. I'll melt them down, I'm going to make a priestly ephod, I'll be the man, I'll give you guidance and direction in life. And they then, by the time the end of his life had come, they were no longer following Yahweh, 
He died, and they were following the Baals and the culture around him. Totally Canaanized, absorbed into the culture, no sense of the story of God and the victory over the Midianites. Then we pick up chapter 9, and this wonderful character, Abimelech. Got 57 verses, it's so long, I'm not going to read it all, so that's sort of hopefully some encouragement to you. But we're going to read some of it because we need to get our head around it and see what we can learn. So, reading from verse 1, it should be on the screen somewhere. There we go. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. Abimelech, remember, he's a son of a concubine or a slave woman. He's not fully Jewish. He is got, he's a Canaanite, half and half. So here, here he is securing his audience, building his coalition to be king. Verse 3, when the brothers repeated to all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he's related to us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal-bereth, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Oprah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. What's interesting about this location here, this location here is the same location where Jacob buried all his foreign gods and built an altar to Yahweh in Genesis. This same location is where Joshua, just before he finished his time with the nation of Israel, where he renewed the covenant and the call to faithfulness to the covenant and occupying the land of Canaan to carry on the mission which he had led them into. So here Abimelech goes to this significant place and basically he makes a covenant type agreement with the people saying, I am it. A total disconnect from the upper story. A total disconnect from his family, from their God, and I am it. I'm your man. Verse 7. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. So now he, Jotham tells a parable. In this parable, there are trees and there's a thorn bush. As we read it through, think of the trees as the people of Shechem, who Abimelech has come to rule over. And we read, One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree answered, should I give up my oil by which both gods and human beings are honoured to hold sway over the trees? Next the tree said to the fig tree, come be our king. But the, fig, but the fig tree replied, should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? Then the tree said to the vine, come and be our king. But the vine answered, should I give up my wine? which cheers both gods and human beings to hold sway over the trees. Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, come be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, if you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Abimelech is the thorn bush. 
So here, this is really a parable of Jotham. He's telling the story to insult Abimelech. He's not knocking kingship. He's just insulting this terrible half-brother of his. Verse 16, Jotham goes on to say, Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you have revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he is related to you. So, have you acted honorably and in good faith toward Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from you, the citizens, oh, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had, covered, had governed Israel three years, this is interesting, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. Then the next part of the story, it goes on, where the city of Shechem, the people under the leadership of Gael, they rise up and want to overthrow Abimelech. He comes back, he attacks, he destroys, he throws salt all over their land so the land will produce no crops. Then there's another part of the community rises up and they want to get rid of Abimelech as king and he drives into the town and he corners the people in this tower, a bit like a tower of Babel, and he surrounds it. And we come to verse 52. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head, cracked his skull. Beautiful. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. It's pretty clinical stuff. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. End of the chapter, end of the story. The intriguing thing I find about the story is the way in which God is a player in the story. Verse 23, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the people of Shechem. 24, God did this in order that the crime would be um, dealt with. Thus God repaid their wickedness. God made the people of Shechem pay for their wickedness. So it's really interesting here, isn't it? In the context of the story of Abimelech, in the context of the story of faith, what is God doing? He allows all this destruction to happen, then all of a sudden he intervenes. And in our own story of faith and keeping our own faith alive, part of I think is understanding, and we've talked before about this upper story of God, but also about the nature of God and how he interacts with us. And one thing I also want to propose this morning, in keeping faith alive, 
We need to have an understanding, we need to not forget that God is in charge but not in control. We see in the story here of Abimelech, this terrible injustice to Jeroboam's 70 sons. God just sort of stood back, let it happen. But then we see God intervening. It seems to be in the story that God steps in at points in the story where he wants to bring justice, adjust the story, to bring it together, to keep going in his overall mission of what he is wanting to achieve. So there's a tension here of the free will of the players in the story and the sovereign purposes of God. I think sometimes we use cliches in Christianity like, oh, God is in control. You're right. The story here doesn't look like God is in control of these What sort of God would want to kill 70 sons like that? But perhaps God just allows some things to happen. He allows the consequences of free will to happen. But I can assure you there's many people not in churches today because this whole cliche of God is in control has just done their head in. It doesn't make sense in the world in which they live in. And cliches can often do so much damage to the faith. But I think if we see the control of God, rather than God is in control, but saying God is in charge. The best way in which I can illustrate this is in the context of a school. You think of last week of that uh, death of that rugby player, Avondale College, I think it was. There's a principal that sits over that school. He's in charge of that school. He knows what he wants to achieve for that school, what sort of environment. I'm sure he wants a safe environment for his students. He wants a place of high-quality education. And he's seeking to take that school forward into this place of improved education, improved sense of links with community, improved safety for students, but stuff happens. He cannot control what happens in every classroom. He can't control what happens after every rugby match. And I think the world is a bit like that in relationship with God. God is in charge. He's bringing this upper story to its conclusion. We don't know when that's going to happen. But if God is controlling every bit of detail and determining what happens, well, why did the fall happen? Why would he cause that to happen? It just doesn't make sense. And you think of things like the Holocaust, Christchurch earthquake, why would he cause that to happen? But if we can have rest in the confidence God's in charge, he's actually not going to let it fall over. Look at the story of Abimelech here. The only character in that story that's got it all together at the end is God. He sort of brought it to a stop. A woman dropping a millstone on Abimelech's head. Bang, over. The story moves on. You see, if, we're ta- if we don't have free will, we're just robots. And... We feel powerless to do anything. Well, that was fate. It was just meant to be. So thirdly this morning, and the looking at the whole context of keeping faith alive, passing it on to the next generation, presenting an authentic faith to the world and the culture we live about, I want to propose another thought that we need to not forget that God is for us. I think in our, in our core and in, in our being, 
Our disposition struggles to think that God is for us. And you go back to the story of the nation of Israel. Earlier on in the book of Judges, when Gideon is spoken to by this angel from God, this is what the angel says. Judges 6, 7 to 10. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship other gods. Gideon is reminded at the beginning that God is for his people. Gideon struggles to have confidence that that is the case. He puts out fleeces, etc. Is this really so? So he could go forward and into battle? Because God already told him he had won. He would have victory, but he lacked confidence that God would actually be able to do it for him. At the end of the story, he comes back from battle, rejects this offer to be the king, and sets himself up as some sort of spiritual guru leader disconnected from God. It doesn't say he didn't believe in God anymore, but he had chosen to live differently, live without God. They were safe, they were secure again, the Midianites had been defeated, all things in the land were pretty well. And we can live like that, still with a belief in God, but our life actually shows that we really aren't connected to the God whom we believe in. And I think we go back prior to the story of Gideon, go right back to the beginning of our Christian story, to the Garden of Eden, we see the same thing happen with Adam and Eve. There's Adam and Eve in the garden. The serpent comes along and says, you know, why aren't you eating from that tree? Well, Eve says, well, God says, we can't, um, because that's only for him, otherwise we'll become like him. And that can't be so. The serpent, he challenges them. And he says, you're not going to die if you eat from that. God's not telling you the whole truth here. He's holding back on you. You're going to miss out if you don't eat from that. So what do they do? They eat from it. But what's interesting is when they eat from it, they then has the consequences they go and hide in the garden, they start to make some clothes for themselves, and God comes into the garden that night. And he calls out to them, and he wonders why they don't respond. And in the script, in Genesis, it says, Eve says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. Prior to that, they felt safe with God. They anticipated God's covering, so coming, so they covered themselves up. God comes and they are fearful. Why? Because they didn't think God was for them. They thought God was against them. They couldn't depend on God. They didn't feel safe. They had to cover themselves up. Prior to that, we assumed they had no clothes on. And they felt safe with God. And so here we see this whole thing of fear and control. Out of their fear, they sought to clothe themselves. Prior to that, they didn't need to be clothed in the presence of God. 
And we read later on in Genesis chapter 3 how God actually makes some more clothes for them. He's there for them. Even though they've rebelled against him, he comes to them. And the implications of this whole disposition towards God and my own security, I think, comes out of that Genesis narrative. We see it in, the, in Judges. And there's a quote on the screen which I think helps, sums this up for us of what's going on here. The choice that Adam and Eve makes represents the uh, typical fault, the line that exists in the world. God has created a world, but we've chosen to live in it as if he were not reliable or trustworthy. As a result, we no longer experience the world as a safe place, but rather a threatening one. Managing danger is our our chief preoccupation. Because of Adam and Eve's doubt, they take control of their situation. No longer trusting God, they're in control. Their own autonomy. That tension is what goes right through the whole biblical story, right through into our own lives. I would propose today that our default disposition in our lives is to make ourselves safe. To make ourselves secure in this world. And so we do all these things, and I'm not saying none of them are important, but it's our disposition to them. We want ourselves financially secure. We want ourselves to be healthy. We want to live in a safe neighborhood. None of those things are wrong. But if that's the total driver of my whole life, it's about making myself safe, oh, but also believe in God. I go to church time to time, may do 10 weeks in Sunday school at a weak moment when there's an appeal from the front. But I think Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, we see him actually being one who is bringing a kingdom which is about risk. You think of Zacchaeus when he was called. He was called to come and follow Jesus and give up his financial security. Nicodemus Nicodemus was told to give up his intellectual security and told, I just need to be born again. And the fishermen were taken away from their fishing boats. Follow me. I will be your security. I am for you. Like Jesus, he said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He didn't build up all these secure things around him so he could then do the mission of God. I think so often in our middle-class evangelicalism, you know, we often by our lifestyle or in our conversation say, you know, once I get this sorted out, I'll be able to do this for the Lord. In other words, once I'm secure, so I'm safe, got the financial streams all sorted... I will be safe. What's interesting in the gospel narrative, when Jesus is coming on the scene, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, when he hears that Mary's pregnant with the Messiah, he says, he will come and enable his people to serve him without fear. I think so often we are reluctant to step out for God because of fear, because we don't feel safe. We don't think God is for us. But Jesus in the gospel said he came to not to be served, but to serve. I wonder what sort of picture you have of God. Is he for you? Can you really trust him? You 
You see, Gideon, after those mammoth battle with the Midianites, tremendous victory, wasn't in a very short time afterwards, his whole behavior was all about him and his world and controlling his world and not God being king over his people. The people came to him to look for guidance. And the consequence of that, he started having relationships, sexual relationships with Canaanite women. As a son of a Canaanite woman. See, as a result of that sin, there's consequences through to the next generation. Consequences that actually impacted his 70 sons, of which 69 got killed on the stone. Pretty graphic stuff. But sin... When we take control, start to live out of another story, it has implications on our family. They don't see authenticity with the greater story. You know, when I discovered this, thinking about God being for me, that basically the garden story is not about me being guilty, but about me being insecure and fearful and wanting to make myself safe, I saw my whole life in a different light. My striving in life was all and is still about making myself safe. I'm trying to translate this kind of thinking into my own life. And at any opportunity, I'll take steps to make myself more safe, more financially secure, warmer at night. Don't want my health to leak. None of those things are wrong, important. But my disposition, I can be so consumed with things about my world And all of a sudden, God gets squeezed out to the side because I'm securing my patch in his world. And so in keeping faith alive and passing our faith on to our children, on to our workmates, our neighbors, etc., what are we showing about how we live? Is it just the same as them making ourselves secure? We're just as fearful about things? Or do we believe, even though I don't know, God is going to sustain me? So finally, in keeping faith alive, we need to not forget that we are shaped by desire. At the heart of us all, we are motivated by desire. Last night, dinner was a bit late. We need to talk about this at another time. But like the test was on at 7.30. You know, the, so the lead-in starts at about 7. And the dinner didn't come on the table to 10 past 7. Like, I don't mind watching delayed sports, but an all-black test, you watch it live. Now, there's some things that are just true in life. And it was a beautiful meal. So what do you do? He comes to 7.29. You know, at 7.30, the all-blacks will be coming out on the field, getting to the haka. But you've got to watch the haka. So I was in a moral dilemma. Desire. You won't know what I did. Hopefully you'll think that I'm a good man. But Augustine said something about desire and who we are as people. As he reflected on the Christian life and discipleship, he says, For when there is a question as to whether a man is good, one does not ask what he believes or what he hopes, but what he loves. You see, we can have a whole lot of beliefs, but they can make no difference. I believe this. I actually do seriously believe God is for me. My life doesn't tell that story. I want it to, but it doesn't. And so what do I really love? 
people who know me, they should be able to tell me what I do love because my behaviour will tell it. And so I think in wanting to keep our faith alive and pass it on to the next generation, what do your children see as what you love? What actually shapes your big picture? What causes you to live where you live? Have you chosen to live where you live or surf where you surf or play golf where you play golf because of what's best for you? Or have you chosen to do those things? I play golf here because there's people there I can actually connect with. Lots of people of my age group and it's a good social time and I need to have more Christians and non-Christians in my life so I can just relate to and just be Jesus. Or is it because it's, I don't know, I think golf's a dumb game, it takes too long, but I don't know why you want to play it, I'm trying to think of reasons. But I'm sure there's people here who could help with that. Well, I would like to go to the V8s or something anyway, but that's something else, that's different. But why am I doing what am I doing? What is driving my decisions and direction in life? Because it's out of desire is really what tells us who we are. So in a sense, what is your picture of what human flourishing is? In your mind, you may not have ever formally thought about it, but if you stop and pause, all your behaviours are showing there is a picture, an ideal picture of the world you're trying to create. Now, is that picture and those drivers consistent with the top layer of life, of God's story? Because I tell you this, what we do know about current generation, the millennials, is that they strive to see authenticity in people's lives. What is real? What really matters? That's what motivates them and connects them to causes. This current generation is much more connected to social concerns and the needs of others than my generation. There's a difference. There's a much greater connection with humanity. What are they seeing as you as a parent, your children, of what drives you and causes you to live? And do you actually articulate it in a way in which they can translate and say, gee, mate, I want to be like mum and dad. I want to have that motivation. So when they're choosing their courses at school, I want to take this course so I can be Jesus in that context because I reckon I could express Jesus well in that context because that would really just be an authentic place for me to present the gospel. Another way of thinking about it is, what do you care about? And so in the context of our lives, we need to be thinking of where our life is going. What picture are we painting? Is it connected to the bigger story of God? Is it held within that? Am I trusting that God is in charge despite all the chaos? Am I believing that God is actually for us and I'm actually communicating that to my children? Yeah, we trust God. He's for us. Even though stuff is happening here, we're trusting Him. And are the desires of our heart something that is shaping me and us as our family and our household? We're shaped by the desire of the kingdom. We've caught what Jesus was on about Because Jesus was on about setting the world right. He was on about bringing love where there's not love, bringing justice where there was injustice, and he's called us to be part of that. And so this morning, as we sing this song, 
and take communion when I survey the wondrous cross. This cross is not about Easter. Yeah, it happened at Easter. But when we survey it, think of the big picture. Think of the garden where Adam and Eve basically said, we fear you, God. We don't think you can make us safe. What are you doing to get out of that story and saying, God, I believe you are for me? Because the King of Glory died on that cross. He's the one who brings the two together. And in that song it says, My richest gain I count but loss. My richest gain. Think of Gideon when that prophet came to speak to him, that angel, about what God had done for them. He had delivered them from their oppressors. He had taken them into the promised land. He had fed them and sustained them. He was for them. It's not about us, it's about him. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.